this is my ninth year, I think, teaching here at the school. Um, eight or nine, somewhere in there. Uh, Jim actually hired me uh, his first year here as principal, and uh, this was my first my church my first teaching gig uh, was here. So this is all I've ever known. Um, previous to this, uh, I had worked in the world of, the world of wilderness therapy uh, as a guide uh, for three years, uh, and then uh, previous to that was college. So maybe a little bit about myself. Okay, cool. So. Um... So if you could maybe share a little bit about, um, I really like the way you explained sort of that concept of paper tigers, if you could uh, sort of explain that. Sure. I mean, are, are you referring to just the the brain science behind it? Like the idea that... Um, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, let's see. Well, um, I guess... I guess the main components of it, I guess the main components of it lead to the idea that behavior might not necessarily be a choice all the time for, for, for an individual. And, you know, where we're working, that's kids. Um, but I guess that there's really not, uh, there's really not an age limit on this. Um, it's really, it's, it's similar to, uh, our soldiers that come back, uh, from war and have PTSD <clears throat> to where, uh, there's been a, a, a wiring issue in the brain that has caused it to react differently than what you would maybe say normally. So the idea is that uh, in, a, in a normal functioning brain, uh, when there's a stimulus, when there's, when there's a threat, then our body responds to it to, to respond to that threat by flooding with uh, cortisol, adrenaline, um, hormones that, that ramp us up and get us ready for the threat. Um, in a normal situation, you know, the threat it's either resolved, either you're dead or you've resolved the threat in a fairly short amount of time. And then those levels return back to normal. And that's, or you normal. avoided the threat, like somebody's chasing you. Or sure. You've got the, either you're safe or you're done, but either way, that threat, it, it, there's an ebb and flow that's supposed to happen with that in a normal setting. And, uh, the control center for that is, you know, in the very center piece of our brain It's in the mammalian piece of our brain. Um, it's that part that, that we share with all the rest of the mammals. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, in a normal, in a healthy environment, that part of the brain develops, but then you also develop uh, the bigger outer part of our brain, the part that allows us to do our critical thinking um, and, and allows us to uh, understand social um, body language around us, allows us to under, uh, navigate through a complex social world. Um, but in the situation where... Uh, a kid grows up in an environment that is continually stressful to where the stressor is not known. Like you never know when that stressor is going to happen or that stressor is just always around. Then the normal ebb and flow of that doesn't happen and they're always in a state of fight or flight. And then through that, through that the brain physically develops differently. So that mammalian piece of the brain um, becomes um, really larger. I mean, it's very robust. Um, and really good at its job, which is great, except for the fact that, you know, hopefully you're, this, this kid, this child is going to grow up and become a member of society and, and be able to create its, their own environment around them at some point where they're no longer just responding to the threat, which is around them, which is out of their control. Right. Uh, the problem being is once they reach that point, um, 
the critical thinking part of their brain, the part that allows them to navigate through complex social world, is underdeveloped. Um, thus, thus leads them to a place where, you know, like Diana in the film, you know, a common, a common occurrence uh, with her would be, uh, you know, if she was sitting in the middle of the class, and let's say there was a conversation happening on one side of her, and a student on the other side of her was overhearing that conversation, and maybe that maybe that conversation said something funny, and so this other student that was kind of following it from the other side of her heard it and laughed, then she would explode and escalate, just instantly assuming that that laughter was someone making fun of her, right? So she right. would misinterpret the social cues. Uh, and then just blast through the roof, which would then uh, create like a really weird rippling effect through the room. Because as soon as she explodes, then all of a sudden she becomes really unsafe, and then mm -hmm. she triggers all the rest of the kids in the room that are on a, on the very edge of fight or flight at all times. And you get right. a couple of kids who turtle, and they'll just shut down. And then all of a sudden you'd have other kids pop off, and then you got two other kids that all of a sudden they want to fight, and they're going at it, and they weren't even part of the initial. The initial experience that that had her going through the roof. So, so did you understand about these this mechanism prior to working at Lincoln, or did you learn it while you were um, working at Lincoln? Um, a little bit of both. I was I was fortunate enough through working in the field of wilderness therapy, um, right, to understand the therapeutic piece of the kids. You know, I, I spent so much time with them that um, I started understanding these themes for uh, kids that have been through trauma. Right. And so when I when I got here, um, I think that piece of separating the kid from the behavior was already in place. Um, right. I, I had never heard of ACEs. That was something that was new and introduced to me. Um, there were some educational components as to why the whys. I picked up some more of the whys. Okay. Um, but I think that's probably true. You know, anyone who works with uh, traumatized kids successfully are already doing these things. They just maybe don't have uh, the the language or the vocabulary or you know some of those things to go with it. But I think that's true. But uh, but still, there's so many. I still, unfortunately, there's just so many people that work with traumatized kids that still try to take a punitive approach. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's true. But um, which uh, like I remember I spoke with Jim about it, and I, I like he he made some comment about really trying to keep. Uh, it's going to take a long time to really uh, change these complex systems that are often can be very punitive. You know, it, it's true that it could take a long time. Um, and I would argue that probably the, the length of time that that takes is directly related to our governing bodies, you know, um, from a state level, uh -huh. uh, our education that they're the ones that are really shaping education. So as long as, they are penalizing or rewarding schools for achieving certain scores on tests, right. then it's going to leave a lot of schools no option but to penalize poor behavior because really what they're doing is they're moving the behavior out that's preventing learning from happening with the rest of the class. And that's a really legitimate thing. You know, I'm not um, – like that, that really is happening and that really does happen. If, if, however, we recognize, you know, like there's a lot of, uh, I like what California is doing right now because there's a lot of disabilities that we recognize that if a student has this disability, then we're going to make accommodations for them. We're going to give them a separate class. We're going to give them smaller class sizes. We're going to offer them the support that they need for that disability. Right. But as of yet, this really isn't recognized as such a thing. So if, you know, if schools were given more support to uh, 
not have to just achieve a number on a test score, mm-hmm. then I think that I think that we would see that change happen mo- much more rapidly. You know, I, mean, right. I really think that that's what's driving it. I think if it was to open up from a state level, and if the expectation would come down from a state level that this was dealt with, then probably change could happen pretty rapidly. But what about, I mean, you bring up the idea of disabilities, and I, I think one of the things I think is a problem is that uh, often kids get labeled with these mental health um, diagnoses like ADHD sure. or depression, anxiety, which to me are often m- much more likely to be a result of the trauma that they're going through, and that uh, they get tagged with these other labels, and it's not really addressing the underlying trauma. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's true. That's very true. No, but uh, yeah, and I don't think it has to come with a diagnosis, but it has to come with the understanding that um, l- similar to dyslexia, this is a, this is something that is not in the in the in the student's control. Correct, uh, and that there needs to be support built in around it. Well, absolutely, you know? but I, I'm wondering what what do you, what is the the uh, the kids' response to learning about this uh, the the sort of the the neurobiology behind what's going on? How do they take to that? Sure. Uh, you know, that's, uh, so the very first year I learned about this stuff and I was just like, oh, this makes so much sense. I got to teach the kids. I got to teach the kids. So, so sure enough, I just rallied into the class period, uh, armed with all my new knowledge. And I just drove the classroom right into a hole. Like, uh, you know, I'd, I'd worked in therapy enough to know when I, when I had gone wrong and had gotten right. myself in over my head. And, all of a sudden I realized as I got to the end of the period that I had just served up this big dish of, hey, everybody, look how messed up our brains are. Right. You know, and here's the implications for the rest of your lives. And here's why they're messed up. And it totally <laughs> makes sense. And now you understand why it is that you do all the crazy things you do. It's because your brains are hardwired wrong. You know, and then all of a sudden it was like this uh, the obvious next question, which, which I really should have been att- anticipating was, okay, man, so now what? <laughs> You know, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm standing there and I'm going, oh, man, I, I don't have the answer to this really critical question, which is the OK, now what? Like I've just served him up this really um, uh, heavy, uh, somewhat depressing piece of information and uh, with nothing to go with it from here. So um, I still I still it's still tough. It's still tough. And it, I think it still needs to be handled uh, delicately because the fact is, yes, uh, you know, this doesn't mean that whatever your behaviors are, you're stuck with them for the rest of the life, what rest of your life. But at the same time, you know, it would show if you look at statistics, it would show that the the chances and odds of those behaviors changing are pretty low. Right. Um, that the work it takes to create new patterns and form new neural pathways in the brain, it it is really difficult and takes a lot of time. And so, you know, it, it in some ways it is it is a grim realization but i think it's it's the start that needs to happen in order for the, to move forward you need to understand where you're at so um it's something that needs to become aware of um but yet at the same time it's a pretty delicate you know in the in the movie it, it puts it all together in one quick little class period right is what it looks like um when the reality of it is that's something that um when it gets to the real formal like just me giving that educational component in my classroom you know that that looks like possibly a week um, and that being said, it's a week, but, but they've already been hearing bits and pieces of it leading up to whenever I lay that out and talk about it in the classroom. So yeah, it's, it's still, I still feel uncomfortable with that part. Like it's still, 
Um, I still wish I had more to give. You know, I wish I had more specific, concrete things to say. Yeah, you bet. You do this, this, and this, and you're going to be okay. And uh, right. I just feel like I, I don't have enough of that like I wish I did. But I think part of it is that we're still learning about it too, you know? I mean, it's a... It's emerging it's field. A, yeah, it really is. So what about... Uh, um, yeah, I really admire the, 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 uh, sort of that interaction that you had with the guy, Stephen, I believe it was, and how uh, <laughs> with the text message and all that. I mean, because you... <laughs> You speak a little bit about that that type of experience. How? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's something that happens a bunch in here. Um, as far as uh, well, let's see. It's a fairly vague statement. Let well, actually, let me let me tell you. I, I more specific. Okay. Uh, well, one of the things that that, I, that sort of uh, I remembered from that encounter was the idea that you were bringing up that. Uh, yeah, that in like, uh, you know, when he goes out in the world and he gets a job that people aren't going to interact, you know, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to say, oh, you know, what's going on hmm. that's, uh, you know, underlying this behavior. They're just going to fire him or, or whatever. Right. You bet. So, um, so I guess, I mean, that, that that's sort of a bigger thing. I mean, uh, but maybe, you know, if people in sort of all stratas of, uh, of the world would become more attuned to this kind of stuff that maybe, uh, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that um, people would be more tolerant of, of things in, in the uh, the work environment, too. Sure. And that would be that would be an ideal situation, but obviously not one that uh, <laughs> I plan for. Right. right. But at the same time. So and we do get that. So that's that is if, if I were to say the common uh, criticisms that I hear or the concerns that I hear is that we're just coddling the kids. We're not holding them accountable and we're not. Uh, treating them in the same way that the real world is going to treat them. Right. And then um, the reason that to me those arguments are so ridiculous is that the real world for these kids is already so much more harsh than the real world of most people that we're talking about preparing them for. Right. That they're that that it's just a, it's a it's it doesn't um, it doesn't relate right. Like um, I, I'm a, I have them in high school, and if a punitive approach was going to change their behavior. It would have changed it for the first eight years of their schooling. They didn't just start getting in trouble when they got to high school in ninth grade right. and getting in trouble forever. Um, and so if you look at all the, the, you know, what is the, you know, what are you looking for to get out of punishment? I mean, it, the idea that people wished would happen, I, I guess the hope for people would be, well, the fear of whatever the thing is that you're going to dish out, the fear of whatever this punishment is going to change the way they behave. And, and the gross error of that is a couple of things. Number one, it's assuming then that the behavior is their choice, which we always said is not. Right. And so they're going to react impulsively in the moment with or without that punishment in place. And then secondly, what's your punishment that you're going to give out? Like, are you going to serve them up something that is so much more significantly painful than whatever it is that they've got going on in their normal life experience that it's going to change their behavior in the future? No. Are you going to just suspend them for 10 days so they can go home and sit on the couch and smoke weed like that doesn't make any sense either right right um so i mean we've been trying the punitive approach with with this population and if it had worked it would have already worked and so um you know they're gonna have plenty of life ahead of them for the hard pieces of life to put them in check and give them that reinforcement great but uh, it seems like it's worth for four years if we get them as a freshman for us to maybe use the relationship piece that we can develop by understanding them as a person and truly valuing them and working with them where they're at than to try to make some growth from the point they're at and grow them as much as we can in those four years before they go back out into that world of hard knocks, you know? 
Yeah, the interesting thing I found with the punitive approach is it generally, uh, I mean, not that these kids like you, like that you work with are necessarily like real bad kids, but they're the kids that um, that a punitive work. Uh, they're they sort of the, the, the punitive approach. I, my my experience works for the kind of kid that uh, yeah, that just got in trouble like once or twice, and then you're pu- and then it just sort of shifts their whole behavior, sure. not just yep. Right. You know, and, and it's, and that people hear that, right. And I want to, I want to jump in on this and that is that, um, we're still using accountability. I mean, there's still consequences for you. And I'm sure Jim, Jim rails this super right, hard. No, he does. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly important that the consequences are still in place. It's just, what do those consequences look like? Um, you know, and those consequences for us, what we believe they should be is, um, that they are here at school versus at home. We believe that it should be where they're here at school and they're with somebody that uh, is skilled in listening and talking and then can make that a meaningful experience for the day that they're in school suspension as well. Um, you know, truancy is a big deal with these kids. So having them here in school for a day where even if they're not in class, they're still working on assignments, they're still making up work. Uh, if I have a, a quiz or a test or a lab that particular day and they're in, in school suspension, I can call Shelly up or, uh, you know, our ISS lady and just have them come into, into my class for that one period. So they're not falling farther behind because they're not in school. Um, it just it just seems to make more sense to me, at least. But I, I guess the other, this other question I have is that uh, I mean, from watching the movie, it seems like you have a really unique staff there at Lincoln. How how do you uh, I don't know how do you see this <laughs> approach uh, working in other places where people aren't as are harder to buy into these kinds of concepts? You bet. <laughs> ah, that's a great question. And unique is a nice word for it. We have a weird group of people working here. Like, uh, the weirdest person in our school actually is our PE teacher because he's the only normal human, I think, in our school. Right. He's our PE teacher, and it makes him really stand out as being the weird one, I think. Um, huh, it's really tough. Um, so I think... Okay, so it has to look different in different settings. Um, you know, we're an alternative school, and so it's easy to compare this situation to other alternative schools where the bulk of your population is made up of kids that are struggling. But what does this look like in a traditional high school with a class of 36 to 38 students uh, that are college-bound, where the academic rigor is really high, they're cranking through a ton of work, yeah. and the teacher doesn't have the 10 minutes a class period to spend in the hallway talking to a student when they need it, right? Uh-huh. So it's true that it's going to have to look differently, um, but I guess uh, on, on, a, on a philosophical level, the, the belief of our school is that the best place for any, of, any kid is with us at our school. You know, there's, um, there's never a reason that we would move a kid on beyond us. You know, we will adapt and change whatever we need to to make whatever the, the thing that that particular student needs happen here at our school. And um, I think f- the only thing I can think of that is legitimate would be financial, would be the only reason that I could see a reason for a, you know, a 2,000 student traditional at high school to not have be able to have that same approach, you know. Um, so what would that look like? Yes, there'd be some things that would have to be different. Um, but, but let's start with the philosophy of the school is every staff, we, the, the goal of our school, even if we have 2,000 students, is still to value every single student and want them with us. And so if I'm a teacher and I have 38 kids in my class and I have a student who is their behavior is preventing the class from learning, then that student needs to go out of my classroom for that period. Now, um, if that happens... 
you know, I can still manage that situation with them understanding that I value them. I want them to be there. I wish that they were there, but unfortunately where they're at right now, they need to go somewhere else because I have to continue teaching the class. The difference comes in the next level of people then of staffing that that student comes in contact with that, that would be the people that would need to step, pick up the job that I'm fortunate enough to be able to do as a classroom teacher with a classroom of 20 students at my school. Well, maybe that's your next row of counselors at a traditional high school that are the next level of people that love on kids and value them and are trying to figure out what's going on for them. And when that student comes in, they're saying the, Hey, what's going on? Are you okay? What's the deal? They're still not a punitive situation. And then let's say that student does continue to struggle. Well, then maybe that school needs to develop classes for uh, smaller class sizes for those kids that are struggling with a teacher that really is good with that population that's working there. But they're still trying to keep that kid in their school. You know, they're still like the whole school benefits from a, from a feeling of we want all students to be here. Not only just that student that's being interacted with, but I mean, that it lends itself to a feeling that permeates every piece of the whole school. It's your custodians, it's your, it's your cooks, right. you know, it's everyone that kid comes in contact with, they have this feeling of, man, this person really values that I'm here. Right. No, that's, so it works, I think, at any school. No, I hear what you're saying, but I guess my question is more specific to like where I'm at here. I live in the, the Miami area. I don't know if you've ever been out here, but it's just uh, culturally, it's a lot of a much different uh, vibe. Mm. I've never been in uh, uh, Washington State, but I've been on the West Coast. Mm. And it just seems like mm-hmm. it's a whole different attitude. And uh, right. especially when you have like people that are um, immigrants from like the Caribbean, I feel that it's also a little bit of an idea that it's more that kids need to be, you know, they, that it was more acceptable and permissible to be beaten in, in their, uh, at home and that kind of stuff. And, uh, spare the rod. Yeah. Spoil the child. That kind of stuff. Exactly. Sure. And, uh, and just try to convince people with different cultural backgrounds uh, of these kinds of ideas and the value of it. That, uh, so, so values is, is, I think, I think you hit it with values. Um, I think, uh, you know, so values are the, this set of beliefs that we have that drive the way we interact with the world. And, what happened at our school is that with the combination of um, having a, a realization of what the reality was like at home for these students that came out of, a, of a, this survey that we did several years in a row right. that provided a lot of really stark data about the home life of the kids combined with the brain science that showed, well, we know this is happening with the kids and here's the science that shows this is what it's doing to the brain. I think through through this education, along with the relationships that teachers had already been building with the kids, there was a value shift that happened sort of across the school, uh-huh. and it didn't happen for every teacher. Uh, you know, there was there were there were several teachers that that moved on; they went elsewhere. Um, they chose to be in a different setting where they felt more supported, and um, and I think that the way it's going to be, I think you're going to have a, a collection of say a third of the teachers that are. And I'm totally making these numbers up, but a third of the teachers that already get it, that are just waiting for permission from the administration to do the thing that they already want to be doing. A third of the teachers that all they need is this information about the brain science and an understanding of what these kids' lives are like, that their value shift happens for them and they change their paradigm and it works for them. And this is is one other thing I've been thinking regarding this is since you guys have implemented this kind of uh, trauma-informed approach and have done done it very successfully, but how, are there any mechanisms you have in place to sort of in, enforce this kind of, uh, not if enforce is the right word, but to, uh, 
to ensure that this that the that, that people are are um, yeah being uh, being engaged in this trauma informed kind of a way. You mean student wise? Students, yeah. Um, I'm not, um, I guess, no, but I'm not, I guess maybe I don't really know exactly what you were asking about well, that, but there's, yeah, like, uh, like obviously it's a little bit more uh, black and white. If you're, uh, like, you know, measuring test scores, how do you measure that, uh, that the teachers are delivering the, this kind of a trauma informed, uh, approach? Oh, yeah, I got you. I got you. Um, yeah, there's not, we don't have anything to, you know, it's, um, it's something that's really, really hard to quantify. Exactly. Just, yeah, there was a gentleman that there was a gentleman that came in though, and they did do um, a large study that he just had the release. He just had the results come out um, here uh, probably six months ago, I think, is when they finally had him completely done. And uh, I don't remember his name, um, but I do remember that what the results showed was that at within our building after a fairly short amount of time that building the relationship with the kids that the trauma trauma informed approach had all of the kids at a fairly even playing field um and and i and and, and i think the things that they were looking at for that study i only had a chance to glance at it um i think they were looking at truancy they were looking at grades and they were looking at test scores mm -hmm. And that uh, within a fairly short period of time, that it didn't matter within Lincoln what your A score was, you were the students were all performing fairly evenly across the board, separate from their A score, which is what was substantially different than what you would normally find at a school that didn't have this environment going on. Right. No, I was just wondering if there's any unique ways you have of of you know uh, like quantifying this the. Uh, that you're delivering the trauma-informed uh, care. No. I mean, unless you were to say that, you know, I mean, we've had a couple of teachers where kids would go to our registrar and just say, look, you can change my class or not, but I'm not going back. And, um, you know, the contrast of those teachers versus the rest of the school, you, you knew who those teachers were because they only had five or six kids in their class versus the 20 that the rest of the teachers had. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then so that last third, in answer to the, I've already covered two of the three, and the last third are, are teachers I think just aren't going to get it, and they need to be moved on. They need to find something else to do. Right. You know, it's just a matter of moving that that philosophy out of your school. No, but I, I guess what, where I'm coming from is I've heard different kinds of movements, and I, I'm a uh, a therapist, and like you know, reinforcing these kinds of things, and like mental health agencies. But it, un unfortunately, I see it sometimes. It just becomes like a uh, sort of like a, a PR kind of thing and people don't really implement it. Mm, mm, I see. That's what um, I sure. Except for the reason that's, um, yeah, but the reason that's not going to happen here. No, I is see that it's it definitely not happening too with much. you guys. Yeah, but I mean, I don't, and I don't think it will is because once you, once you make that value shift, you're not going to go backwards. I mean, I can't, there's never going to be a point where you're going to decide, yeah, you know, like the trauma of these kids' lives is less important to me than the score they get on this, this, the score on this test. You know I mean? Like, so once your value shifts, there is no implementing, there's no plan to be implemented. You're just 
interacting with the kid on every level and everything you do based on a new paradigm, based on a new value system yeah. that just makes sense. I mean, you can feel it's right. No, 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 no. I, I'm all with you. I think it's it's definitely the way to go. I just I just see a lot of people being resistant to this kind of stuff. As well. Absolutely, and they are. And I guess that's what I'm saying. You're right. They're absolutely resistant, and either that change is going to happen or it isn't. But once yeah. that change does happen, I don't ever see it going back. I see what you're saying. You know? And then the other, the other question I have, I remember I brought this up with Jim, or he brought it up, is this idea that sort of, uh, I think he used the term mirror, that like, uh, that if a kid gets all uh, angry and to a teacher, then the teacher often might be very reactive based on their own trauma history. And have you observed that kind of stuff? The teachers aren't really, uh, uh, maybe they're, uh, they're still dealing with their own stuff and own trauma that they haven't really worked through. Sure. Or if it's not even dealing with their own trauma, it's still the idea that this behavior somehow is because of you. It's the idea that like, that's true. This kid's popping off and they're doing it because of something that they, the, and it, it, and somehow reflects on me as a person. Right. You know? I think that's the, really what he's talking about with that mirror. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's some teachers that, that just can't let that go. I mean, we're fortunate right now because we're to the place now where I really believe that, Almost 100% staff-wise were on board with that. But we had a teacher before where, you know, we had a student point his finger at him and go, you're an asshole. Let me go talk to Jim, you know. And yeah. uh, that teacher was really upset by that. And I think it ended up with some being some sort of a uh, complaint to the union because they felt like they weren't being supported because obviously they wanted to be able to say, if you don't sit down and be quiet, I'm going to send you to Jim, hoping that the kid would be scared to go talk to Jim so they'd change their behavior. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're like, send me to someone who will listen to me. <laughs> yeah. And um, is there anything, um, I mean, sort of what advice uh, in particular would you give to other uh, teachers or other therapists that work with traumatized youth? Oh, man. Oh, there's, um, you know, I think, I, think, um, I think teachers are scared of losing control of the classroom. Yeah. Um, and so... I think because of that um, and the fear of poor behavior, they feel like they have to really rein in hard on it um, and try to hold every kid accountable to a, an even set of behavioral standards. And um, what I found in my classroom is the kids know. These kids have been going to these school with these kids for a long time. Like, uh, you know, I have some students that just get up and walk out of class. And uh, do I wish they were doing that? No. Are they super impulsive? Yes. Yeah. Uh, have traditionally they never gone to class? That's true. But now they are coming to class. And and at first I was scared that that behavior would just sort of spread. And if I let this particular kid just get up and walk out of class, they would all do it. And they don't. They get it. And so I think that we can, as teachers, relax a little bit um, and, and maybe form some more of our behavioral expectations more individually for each student mm-hmm. based on where they're at, um, even though it's kind of scary, you know. Um, so that's good. Any uh, particular um, like books or uh, materials that guide your perspective on these things? You know, I really love uh, Laura Porter. I don't know if you know the, know her. At Name all. sounds um, familiar. She's, she's here in Washington State. Um, she she developed a model for system change, community wise system change um, around Aces, uh-huh. um, and uh, she's she is really amazing in looking at systems change for surrounding aces right. and um i think she's a really a powerful name in the business obviously um 
But uh, no, I mean, it's been, it's been, I don't know, you know, there's been a series of people that have come through here and, and given each of one, you know, adding a little piece into the, into the puzzle that has created what we have going on here. Um, I don't know that there's just be one particular thing, you know? Right. And uh, so uh, I think I noticed you were at this uh, conference in um, California recently. Yeah, last weekend we were in Sacramento. Yeah, how did that go? Oh man, it was really fun. Um, Aces, I think it's just starting to blossom in Sacramento. Right. They just started uh, doing a bunch of Aces work there, and it's really exciting to be around a bunch of people who are passionate about it and uh, and creating that movement and and to be able to see the different pieces of the community. You know, uh, you know, we had teachers in my group, but then there was counselors and intervention specialists and administrators and. Uh, a lot of people that represented a lot of different agencies and a lot of different aspects of the way that this this information can be implemented to to work with kids and help kids and it's just it's really fun to be around a bunch that many people with that much uh, enthusiasm and energy for sure. it. Sure, I mean, I really see the uh, like this kind of uh, stuff having really ripple effects and all like throughout society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, but again, it comes back to that behavior is not a choice. Is, is a tough pill to swallow. You know, it's a, um, you know, we've, we've for so long, our society has been taught that we're going to punish good behavior into people. And, um, you know, like people like to bring up the fact that, you know, back in the day, you uh, were, the, it apparently seemed like it was working, you know, back in the 50s mm-hmm. and the 40s that, that we were able to punish people into good behavior. And uh, why isn't it working now? And I don't know. I don't know why. I just know that it's not. You know, something is dramatically different. Something has changed. Well, I think it's part part of the dynamic that I've heard people talk about. I think it's true that kids don't have the same level of respect for authority than they uh, they used to, and that plays into it. Right, but is that because they were punished enough that they had the fear of disrespecting authority? You know, I mean, where where would that change come from? I'm not sure where it comes from exactly, but uh... I know. <laughs> I know. I agree. I think part of it is the society has changed so much that I think the jobs that you were looking at before, a person could be traumatized and damaged and still be successful at it. You know, your your non-skilled labor job, uh, a person could be successful at. But in today's society, where jobs are so have so much interpersonal skill right. requirements, no matter how in, even entry level jobs require you to be able to work at a fast pace, think quickly, and interact with people, that there isn't that just base labor position that that maybe there was before that allowed people to be successful even though they might have been uh, traumatized. I mean know? one of my hopes for this this movement is, is that the, the conversation so that will shift from talking about uh, uh, like addiction and mental health diagnosis and, and more talking about trauma and the, the relationship between trauma and these types of symptoms and problems. Yeah, and and one of my big hopes is that it shifts. I mean, we're in high school. You know, we've got the cart way in front of the horse. Yeah. Um, this this needs to be hit in two fronts at the same time. It needs to be targeting our early childhood development piece. You know, this needs to be like zero to five year olds right. are need to be be really surrounded by this. And then the parents of those zero to five year olds need to have a ton of resources dumped into them. Like we're kind of in the spot that really the last place that resources need to be hit in this weird middle ground where I'm at in high school. Mm-hmm. You know. It's almost the last place that it should be at, you know. That's one of those things that, if they, I mean, ideally, if the kids realize that and it breaks that intergenerational trauma that they don't pass on to the next generation. 
Right. Yeah, that's the disease <laughs> yeah. model of it, for sure. You know, and that's that. I mean, that is the heaviest thing I serve up my kids every year. And it's a conversation that I do have every year when the moment's right. It's never at the same time. It's just when it's right is the conversation that they captured a little bit of in the film, which was the, you know, 20 years ago, I would have had your parents sitting here in this classroom and I'd love the crap out of them. Right. And they would have said, I'm never doing that. And what, what makes you think you're going to be different? What are you going to do differently that that's not going to be you? You know? Yeah, that's a, t- um, a that's tough a, conversation to have. It's a super heavy moment. Yeah. You know, it is a super heavy moment. But that is, that's the goal. You know, that is the, that is the ultimate. Goal. Yeah, and I remember there was actually, it makes me think of this story. There's a, a woman that I uh, went to grad school with in my master's in social work. And she, she uh, was, uh, had a business breeding horses. And she, she made some comment about, oh, that the, the solution to this problem is just to have these people not, uh, and I reproduce. That's what they do with the horses. Or, but, sure. But, uh, sure. But I mean, I think. No, it's totally. You know, I listened to, um, you know, I, I had to, for my science class, I had to go to a, a two week training, uh, two summers in a row for the last couple summers. And uh, I'm surrounded by all science teachers. I'm surrounded by my peers. There's like 30 of us in the class. And just listening to them talk about students was such a bummer at times, you know, um, there were several teachers that I was listening to. They already had a plan in place with their administration because they were bringing back this high tech curriculum. And if kids didn't show up and they didn't try and they didn't put out, they already had a plan in place to move them out of class. You know, like it was already, they were already ready for it. Um, and, uh, you know, like the, that negative piece that so often happens around the lunchroom in schools, um, just about those those kids that are that are annoying that are um, just pissing you right. off, and and I just can't help but think that so much of that is driven through administration by this expectation of what they're supposed to do in the classroom. You know, my my value as a teacher traditionally is my kids' performance on test scores, and that's it's it's set on that. Yeah. Like how I feel about myself as a human being is based on how well my kids are doing on these Which test scores. Ridiculous. Just, <laughs> It's so ridiculous, and I just can't help but think that 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 so much would change if we could just change the administrative piece to stop making our value uh, based on on what what we produce on a test yeah. score in the classroom. I mean, it's we were you know we were talking about um, um, the 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 um, the fatigue that comes from just compassion fatigue, right? right? And um, so part of that we were wanting to. You know, when Jim was here, we looked at doing some different things. And one of them was bringing in uh, some therapists and having some space for us as teachers to do some cool stuff with some therapists. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the culture surrounding educators is such that it's not safe. We're, we're just continually told that we're not doing it right. And the idea of being able to put forward a weakness or to put forward something where we don't feel good enough or this compassion fatigue piece where we're like, feel like we can't do our job or hang or emotionally we're struggling. Like it, it's, we're already told at all times that the permeating theme for teachers is you're not good enough. You're like, we need to turn the screws harder. It's always about what more can we wring out of teachers, which then sends that signal. Then clearly, if you need more out of us, then we're not doing enough, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm not good enough. And so, um, there is this very weird, um, unspoken negative elephant in the living room. That is just this always, you're not good enough piece for teachers. You know, that's really gross. 
Yeah. So, um, well, thanks again for, uh, I don't want to, I remember you said you got to pick up your kids, but thanks for uh, talking to me, uh, talking to me today with, about this. And I, my, my hope, my, uh, agenda with this is just really to promote more awareness about trauma and people that are working, uh, you know, dealing with trauma in different ways and, uh, people's own experiences of, uh, telling their stories of how they're dealing with their trauma. Sure. And, and to end on a more positive note, I mean, the, the reason I do it and the reason that, and I guess in, in some ways it feels so easy uh-huh. is once you start just unconditionally loving kids and once you start dumping like all of this value into them and, and having them feel valued, the return on it is incredible. I mean, it's, it's you know, like, yes, there's a piece that is servitude based, but there's a selfish piece in this too, right. man. I do this job because it feels amazing you know um i have this wave of kids that walk into my door every period that are so psyched to see me you know that that give back so much positive energy and and uh, give you a charge so exciting (laughs) oh man and these are kids that don't like school you know these are kids that hate teachers these are kids that are always been expelled and now they're just excited to walk in the door and and that piece you know instantly that what you're doing is the right thing i mean clearly it's not wrong you know so that sounds like a good place to end (laughs) Perfect. All right. All right, man. It's uh, good talking. Thanks. Good talk. Bye. Uh huh. Bye.